So, as you can see here, lesson three, what we will be looking at, God, his character, and his attributes. Now, it's important to realize there's a logical progression to how this class works. We started with what is the Bible? What is God's word? Really laying that foundation for the uh, proper understanding that this is God's revelation to us. This is his authority. This is his pure truth. But it's not good enough to simply know that the Bible is God's word. If that's all you know, that's not helpful. The next step is, how do I study God's word? How do I take his word and begin to apply it to my life? How do I begin to understand what these truths mean and what the practical applications are? And so that's really the second part, how to study the Bible. And everything we do in this class in Fundamentals of the Faith moving forward is an outflow of this foundation. It's an outflow of understanding that we don't make any of this stuff up. That none of this is just our opinion or the way we feel. All of this is an outflow of here is God's truth. Here is the fundamental reality of what he showed us. Here's how we study it. And the remainder of this course is really the fruits of that. Really the fruits of that. And where we're going to begin with the fruits of that is God, his character, and his attributes. That'll be these next two weeks. And we're going to break it down into two sections. The person of God. Recognizing that God is not just some mystical force. God is not some impersonal power that moves about. But God is a person. God is an entity. That just as we are people created in His image, God is a person as well. And then we'll move on to there to his attributes. Now, in all transparency, I have really not too much of an idea of how far we'll get this morning. Um, we're just going to go and see what happens. Um, my hope is that we will definitely finish the person of God. And if we get done with the person of God and we got minutes left, we're going to go into his attributes. And the reason I'd like to get a head start on his attributes is because there's a lot. And what I don't want to do is get into a place next week where we're like, yeah, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, we're just trying to click through him, right? So we're going to definitely hit on the person of God this morning, and if possible, head on over into his attributes before we wrap up. The printouts here are really for the next two weeks. If you can hold on to them, great. If you don't, that's fine. We'll try to have more copies next week. But the printouts here are going to be for both. But this is the plan here. Talk about the person of God. Talk about his attributes. And the first place we're going to start when we talk about the person of God is that he is self-existent. Oh, I'm sorry, we're not going to start there. We're going to start with a memory verse. We're going to do a memory work. So new memory verses for this week. This is why we have notes and slides. Remind us what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, first one, 2 Timothy 2.15. Let's read these together. 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. goes right back to how to study the Bible, right? There, there's 
a pattern here to rightly arrive at a proper understanding of God's truth. First Chronicles 29.11, very applicable to the person and attributes of God. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Um, you know, when you, when you read that verse, and as you learn about the person and the attributes of God, it overwhelms you. I think that's what you see here. That's why you've got the author of First Chronicles who, who's just spilling over. Yours is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty. He just simply can't find the words to describe this God that he's come to know. That's really where we end up. When rightly understanding the person and the attributes of God, it's overwhelming. And it applies to every area of your life. The way you live is impacted. The way you love is impacted. Your evangelism is impacted. Every aspect is impacted. So with those verses in mind, now let's get going with the person of God and his attributes. And when we talk about the person of God, we're going to start with his self-existence. His self-existence. God has no creator. God is creator. He created ex nihilo. He created all of this out of nothing. God is the creator. God himself has no creator. When you open up the first page of the Bible, it starts Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We, we get to the first verse of the Bible and God is there. God is there. There's no process of him coming into being. There's no process of him being created. God is simply there on page one. And we're going to talk about the deity of Christ here in a moment. But think about how John starts in revealing to us who Jesus Christ is. John 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We get down to verse 14, we find out that this word becomes flesh in Christ. But there's no creation process. There's no process of Christ coming into being, of God coming into being. It is simply in the beginning, Christ was. In the beginning, God was. This is really what lies behind what we so often called the name of God. God has many names that he reveals himself as throughout the Bible, but the highest one is simply Yahweh. I am. When he revealed himself to Moses, he revealed himself as I am. Revelation 1.8. Christ, again, going to the deity of Christ. Christ says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. When we think about ourselves, who we are is always predicated upon something else. Like, I'm a dad, but that's predicated on the idea of a dad, the ex of fatherhood that's already out there or I myself and my just core being was created God himself though is self-existence 
A critical question we ask ourselves as people, can we know God? And I went ahead and put yes up there because that's an obvious answer. That's what we've been talking about at every step in Fundamentals of the Faith up to this point. We can know God. He's chosen to reveal himself to us in his word. And he's given us the tools and the means of reading, understanding, applying his word to know him. So much of scripture is built upon the fact, yes, we can know God. First John 2.13, John says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him. First John 1.3, John's saying that his whole ministry is based on the fact that uh, what he has heard, he proclaims to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Paul considered knowing Christ and knowing God is the highest thing in his life. More than that, I count all things all the worldly things, all the worldly prestige that Paul had counted it to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. We can know God. But here's a key point and the point that we're going to really drive at right now. There's got to be some humility there. We can only know God to the extent that he chooses to reveal himself, to the extent that he chooses to reveal himself. Think about Deuteronomy 29.29. God tells the people of Israel, the secret things belong to the Lord. The secret things belong to me. Where did we get the master of divinity? Like when I graduated seminary and they handed me this thing that said, Brandon Karen, master of divinity. I'm like, master of divinity? That's a horrible name. Like, I don't know what I've done, but I've definitely not mastered divinity. Um, we can't understand God perfectly or exhaustively. And it, uh, what I want to say, too, here is this is not a knock on the clarity of Scripture or of this, on the sufficiency of Scripture, because there's a little bit of tension in my mind. When, when I start thinking of, okay, I can't fully understand God, does that mean that His Word is not sufficient? Absolutely not. Second uh, Peter 1, 3 and 4 says, God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And if you read that verse in context, he's specifically talking about a, a proper and true understanding, a sufficient and clear understanding of who God is and his truth. So it's not a knock on the clarity or sufficiency of Scripture. In fact, you read Deuteronomy 29, 29, that very verse where God says that the secret things belong to me. You read that verse in context and what he's doing throughout Deuteronomy or that chapter 29 is rehearsing for the people of Israel the great things that he's done and the great things they can know about him. And the reason he's rehearsing that and telling them all those things is so that they can go on to live properly as his people in honor of him. Yet, he says, the secret things belong to me. You don't know me perfectly and you cannot know me completely. Job 11, 7-9, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? And this shouldn't surprise us. Think about his creation. There's really nothing in even God's creation that we fully understand. You think you understand something, any area of science or any area of life or this world, 
But then you keep studying, and scientists even will tell you, like, hey, we thought we understood this, but we're beginning to realize more and more, like, there's just much more than we understand. So if we can't exhaustively understand God's creation, it shouldn't surprise us too much that the Creator is infinite and just beyond the exhaustion of our knowledge. John 1, I'm sorry, Romans 11.33, one of my favorite verses, because Romans 1-11 through is Paul's most thorough treatment of the gospel and the theology of the gospel. And it's like when he gets to the end of chapter 11, he's just so overwhelmed by the greatness of the gospel and the wisdom and the love of God that he kind of just throws his hands up and trying to explain it any further and just starts praising God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. When Paul says how unsearchable his judgments, unfathomable his ways, certainly Paul is not leading us to the conclusion of like, oh, well, we can't understand it, so who cares? I mean, obviously Paul's not doing that, but he's drawing us back to the point of as glorious of a thing as we do understand the gospel to be, it's even glorious beyond our understanding. Isaiah 55, 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. God, we can know him, but we have to exercise humility. This is one of the things that fascinates me the most about heaven. The idea that we will be eternally growing in our knowledge of God. My mind doesn't understand how that's even possible. Because we're so used to, we study something and we think, okay, yeah, I've learned enough about this. I got it. I'm an expert. I can move on. The, the reality that for eternity we'll be growing in our knowledge and love of God, I don't really understand that, but yet it makes sense in light of an infinite and an infinitely glorious God. So how do we know God? Can we know him? Yes, to the extent that he chooses to reveal himself. But how do we know him? Through faith in Jesus Christ. There's three ways that I would point out that faith in Christ is the key to knowing God. First of all, faith in Christ, that's our avenue to restored fellowship with God. Think about Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We became, by nature, because of our sin, enemies of God. Sin interrupted our fellowship with God. And the only way back to restored fellowship is through faith in Jesus Christ. God chose to restore fellowship with His people through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's going to be the, the very first key you look at 1 John, I'll just read it for us here. 1 John. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. John again is reflecting on Jesus Christ and now this apostolic ministry that he has 
for Christ and the gospel. And he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that this life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with us, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The, the gospel is step number one to knowing God. Step number one to knowing God, because it restores fellowship. In addition, though, Jesus Christ is the key agent of God's revelation. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, Jesus Christ, has explained him. It's a really fascinating verse. It's a fascinating Greek word that John uses there when he says that Jesus has explained the Father, that Jesus has explained God. It's a word that's um, probably pretty familiar to us, exegisato, exegisato. So we talk about exegetical preaching all the time, right? Like we want exegetical preaching. That's preaching that takes the Word of God and draws the meaning out of it. Preaching that is um, fed by the Word of God. That's what Jesus Christ did for the Father. Christ exegeted the Father. Christ brought the reality of who God is to this earth in human flesh and showed us the most pure revelation possible of the nature of God. Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 hits on this point. Hebrews is written to Jews, Jews who still had a very high appreciation of the Old Testament and the prophets and the Jewish tradition. And Hebrews doesn't minimize that at all. It builds on it. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God, after he spoke long ago in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he has made the world. Is there not so much in that verse? Just that verse right there. You got the inspiration of the Old Testament. You've got Christ as the pinnacle of God's revelation. And you got the deity of Christ there when he talks about creation. But Christ is really the fullness of God's revelation. So when we talk about the necessity of the gospel and the necessity of Jesus Christ to knowing God, it starts with, first of all, apart from Christ, you have no fellowship with God. You have no relationship. The only relation you have to the Father apart from Christ is his enemy. But in Christ, you are united back with the Father. The second key part with Jesus Christ is just simply that Christ is the fullness of God's revelation. But the third thing, the third key to Jesus Christ being the centerpiece of our knowledge of God is what you get through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit. 
Sorry, for some reason you got to push this like five times to switch this. There we go. Faith in Christ equals the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Remember John 14, 26? John 14, 26, as we talk about the knowledge of, of God, Jesus says, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit is God living inside of you, illuminating His truth, teaching you His truth. You can't understand the things of God apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 2, 9-16. to We'll come back to this verse when we talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit. But the point that Paul is making is that apart from the Holy Spirit, it's impossible to understand the things of God. It's impossible to understand spiritual things. So when the world talks crazy, it shouldn't surprise us. How would you talk if you didn't have the Holy Spirit inside of you? When the world's confused about God and the things of God, shouldn't surprise you. Apart from the Holy Spirit and His revelation of God's truth in your life, you are equally confused. When you present spiritual truth to people in the most plain and obvious terms, and in your own mind, you're like, how can you not see this? Like, how does this not make any sense? Well, it's because... If apart from Christ, they do not have the Holy Spirit, and it is literally impossible for them to understand spiritual things. So when we talk about uh, the key to knowing God being Jesus Christ, it's really three different things that Jesus is doing for us. One, he restores us to fellowship with the Father. You see the whole Trinity involved here. He restores us to fellowship with the Father. Two, He's the fullness of God's revelation. And three, through him and faith in him, the Holy Spirit is gifted to you in your life so that you are even able to understand spiritual truths. So when we talk about the person of God, part one, he's self-existent. God was not created. He simply is. There's no point you can go in time to where God is not. Second, the person of God is knowable. But third, He is one. There is one God. Monotheism is the word that we give to that. There is one God. And this is plainly taught in Scripture. Old Testament, you know, Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, the great Shema, like, this is God saying to the people of Israel, this is what I want your family and your children talking about around the dinner, ta- dinner table. Starts, Deuteronomy 6.04. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the I Am, is our God, and this Yahweh is one. Which is, you put yourself in the historical context of Deuteronomy 6.4. That's a relatively unique thought. For us, we kind of take it for granted because we've just grown up with monotheism all around us, right? Like the belief in one God. Certainly we know there's other people who believe in multiples, uh, in multiple gods, polytheism. But for us, I mean, we largely grow up in a world where like, yeah, there's a God or there's not a God. But like the one idea, the idea of one God. But for 
Israel, I mean, they're surrounded by just so many deities and so many concepts of who God is that there's many gods, so many different cultural ideas. So for Moses to step in or God to step in and say, hey, there is one God, Yahweh, him alone. That's a relatively unique idea that would have struck them much more than it strikes us. But Paul makes the point, 1 Corinthians 8.4, he's talking about this question that people have had where in Greek culture, who again had tons of gods, right? They would sacrifice food to gods and then you could go in the marketplace and buy like the leftovers really cheap. And so people are like, hey, you know, this is like super cheap. This is like the Walmart cost or Costco cost of buying food, Paul. Um, Is it okay to do this? We know these gods are nothing. And Paul reinforces that, yes, you know these gods are nothing. There is no God but one. We get to John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That they may, this is Jesus talking to the Father, that they may know you, Father, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I won't spend a lot of time here because I don't think this is a unique concept to us, but it is important for us to acknowledge that The Bible clearly teaches one God, yet this one God is in three persons. This is where we really start to hit limits of human understanding. There's so many things when it comes to God that we know they're true, and it's like in a shadowy, vague way, your mind can see that this is true. And understand, and you can certainly understand this is objective truth, but truly having an in-depth and like, oh yeah, this is easy, I get this, this makes perfect sense. There's certain things when we talk about God, the human mind hits limits. And for me, the Trinity is one of those. I have no doubt, no doubt there is one God. And I have no doubt that this one God exists in three persons. And I can explain it in a lot of ways. And my mind can like vaguely shadowy see how, yeah, this makes perfect sense, but I hit a limit when it comes to like, oh yeah, I understand this the way I understand two plus two equals four. I'm not going to get there, right? But it's by faith because the Bible clearly teaches it. We know that this is true. We'll start, we'll go in order of controversy for deity on the persons. How's that sound? We'll start with the Father. Like most people are pretty laid back about the Father. Yeah, we believe there's one God. And yeah, you got this Father person that the Bible says is God. That's pretty easy. But we won't take it for granted. There's plenty of scriptural support. Matthew 5.48, Jesus saying, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus, in fact, I would just throw really like the whole ministry of Jesus up there. The whole ministry of Jesus pointed towards the deity and the glory of the Father. It was an emphasis over and over and over again. Um, Jesus clearly teaches us the deity of the Father. Paul teaches this also. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all 
and through all. And like I said, just really the, the entire ministry of Jesus really points to the deity of Christ. And so there's usually not too much controversy when we talk about the deity of the Father because people tend to not have a problem necessarily with the idea that, yes, there's one God and this fatherly God figure. I mean, Mormonism, Islam, like you can kind of go down the line, right? A lot of monotheistic faiths. But where you start to hit challenges is when you, you don't even have to bring all three in. But as soon as you start talking about the deity of Christ, now we've got two persons distinct, the Father, the Son, that we're saying are both God. We haven't even gotten to the third yet. And that's where you start to really hit some challenges. But is the deity of Christ taught in Scripture? Absolutely. I would go to verses that we've talked about already this morning and say those are telling us very clearly that Christ is Himself God. And it's a challenging concept, right? Because we're going to hit another subject when we talk about Christ that is equally impossible for our minds to fully understand. Christ was also a historical figure on this earth. Christ was a real man born as a real baby who walked for about 30, some odd 30, 34 years on this earth from about 4 to 6 BC to 30 AD. So how's that working? You've got Christ who is 100% man, yet at the same time we are saying He is 100% God. And we won't talk about that too much this morning because we'll have a whole chapter on Christ. And so we'll wait to that. But you can see where this really becomes challenges. But look at, just read the Gospels. Christ is worshipped. Remember in Acts, I'm sorry, I didn't, I forgot to write this down. So we're going to, if I get the chapters wrong, forgive me. But it's like, I don't know, like maybe like Acts chapter 8, I believe, where they start to try to worship the apostles for the miracles they do. And what do the apostles do as soon as people start trying to worship them? Stop! Like, what are you doing? We are men like you. Do not worship us. And even think to Revelation. John, he's getting his tour of heaven. And like John just gets overwhelmed by what he sees. And he starts to worship the angel that's giving him the tour. Do you remember what the angel says? Stop it. I mean, this is the Apostle John too, right? Like we expect better of you. I don't know that. But like anytime. God doesn't give His glory to another. So any time in Scripture you find somebody other than God being worshipped, it is instant and strong rebuke. Yet when Christ is worshipped, I don't even know if this is an exhaustive list. These are just the ones I came up with. Matthew 2.11, Matthew 14.33, you see the list there. There could be more that I even forgot to put up there. Jesus is worshipped in all those passages by the Magi, or by the Apostles. Is there rebuke? Is there anybody telling them to stop? In fact, it's the opposite. It's encouraged. So, for Christ to be worshipped without rebuke, He had to have been God 
Otherwise, he was just massively sinful, right? Like there was something massively sinful about Christ being worshipped unless that was worship that he is properly due as God himself, as the deity. You look at um, John 1. We brought this up earlier. But John 1 starts off telling us that this word, it just starts with the word, the word is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he goes on to say, like, through this word, creation came into being. And then you get to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is that historical moment where divinity penetrates into human history. Jesus Christ, John made it as clear for us as possible, is God. So it shouldn't surprise us then when... Um, we get to Revelation. John doesn't have any problem with recording this. This is Jesus speaking to John on the island of Patmos. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is come. Sorry. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so, Jesus here, unless Jesus himself is God? This is a crazy thing for him to be saying, right? Like, this is a sinful, heretical thing for him to be saying, but it's okay, because he is the Almighty. He is the Lord God. He is God. The Father part, most people are okay with that, right? But you get to, like, you go talk to Mormons, you go talk to Jehovah's Witness, you go talk to uh, Muslims, this deity of Christ thing becomes a real, real issue. And it's an issue built on a lot of levels. It's partly an uh, uh, intellectual issue because, like I said, the human mind's only going to get so far down its understanding of the Trinity and the deity and humanity of Christ where at some point you're just accepting God at his word, right? Like, this is, this is how Christ reveals himself. Thank you. I'll try to be less active. But, um, but it, you can't do, like the Jehovah's Witness, they'll have their own translation where they'll go in and change up some words here in debatable ways, but you can't change with wording the overall picture that the New Testament clearly gives us of who Jesus Christ is. You can't go word away people worshiping Christ and that being encouraged. Um, it's simply what the Word of God shows us to be true. But now we get even more controversial, or maybe perhaps just often forgotten, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Yet, don't lose sight of the fact that the Holy Spirit is equal to the Father and the Son and deity, is equally worthy of our worship, is equally important to our faith and our walk as followers of Jesus Christ. 
You can't neglect the Holy Spirit, and you can't get away from his deity. I think just the fact we call him the Holy Spirit tells us he is God. Because God alone is holy in and of himself. Any holiness that exists otherwise is derived from God. Go back to even the Old Testament and um, the worship and the temples. Certainly they said, okay, this, is, this bowl is holy because it's used in the worship of God. Yet the only reason that bowl was holy was because of the holiness of God and its purpose in being used to worship him. And we are called to be holy. We are called to be separate, to be set apart from this world. Yet for us, our holiness is once again derived from God. Apart from the holiness of God, you have no holiness. Yet when we talk about the Holy Spirit, there's no derived holiness. The Spirit himself is holy because he is God. Rocky Wyatt footnote right there because I plagiarized that whole thing from him. You get Acts 5, 3 to 4. Peter uses the terms God and Holy Spirit interchangeably there, synonymously. Um, he's talking to Ananias and Sapphira and he says, hey, you've lied to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. He just interchanges those words there without any thought. But even think back to that 1 Corinthians 2 passage. That 1 Corinthians 2 passage where Paul is talking about the necessity of the Holy Spirit for understanding spiritual things. The point he's making there is like, okay, you have a human spirit and you, nobody knows you as well as you know yourself. Because your spirit knows all that really goes on in your heart and mind in all your understandings of who you are. Nobody knows you like yourself. You, as a person, you have a physical body, but then you also have your spirit, 100% human spirit. And Paul says, in the same way, you've got the Holy Spirit. God, nobody knows God like the Spirit of God. And just as your spirit is 100% human, the Spirit of God is 100% God. And there's other examples we could go to and point out, but the key here is just recognizing that this one God exists in three equal persons. One God, three persons. That is the person of God. And with that, let's go ahead and launch into next week. Is that okay? Launch into next week. Because there's so many attributes of God. And they all deserve so much attention. So much thought could be given to all of them. And so you don't want to get like, okay, we got 10. So let's just start clicking through th these things, right? So let's start talking about his attributes while we have some time. Some of this, I think it's good to understand just so when you hear other people talk or you pick up a theology book, like you understand what they're talking about, you know? So like when I hear us talking about what are communicable versus non-communicable attributes, initially it's like, okay, well, what's, what's the point to that? But 
it's good just to know these things and understand these things, uh, even if it's just so when people talk, um, we, uh, we know what they're talking about. But communicable attributes, those are attributes of God that we also can possess as people. Now, we don't possess them in the way that God does. We don't possess them to the extent that God does and the purity or the perfection that God does, but we can possess them like love. Hopefully, all of us love. Now, God is love, and we'll talk about that, and God's love is infinite and perfect. Ours is far from that, but we can love. We can genuinely love our spouse, our children, our friends, our neighbor, one another. Um, so it's a communicable thing. It's a thing that God has that we can also share in. Righteousness and justice as well. God is perfectly just. There's no blemish to his justice. But we have a concept and should strive to be just as well. We're, I mean, just look around us and look at our own lives as individuals. We're far from perfect. We don't exercise this attribute, but we call it communicable. The next one we call non-communicable. These are attributes of God that really you can't have anything to do with, like omnipresence. God is everywhere at all times. You are here, right? You, you can't even be two places at the same time. Um, you are every, or God is everywhere, but God alone, when we talk about eternality, God alone is eternal. These are not attributes that we share. These are non-communicable. The other key thing before we really launch in to talking about the individual attributes of God is understanding that there's a balance when it comes to God's attributes. There's a harmony here. Think about just these three attributes alone. Love, omniscience, and omnipotence. So love being love. Omniscience, omni means all or everything. Science, knowledge. Omniscience, all-knowing. God knows everything. Omnipotence, omnipotence. God is all-powerful. Like, just take away one of these. Like, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, but he doesn't really know what he's doing, is that good? Or what if you had a God that is all-knowing and he is all-powerful, but no love? That's terrifying. I mean, that's terrifying. Or a God who is infinite in his love and infinite in his knowledge, but he can only do so much. You see how far short of the biblical God we fall as soon as you start pulling these attributes out. Like these have to exist together and they exist in harmony to give us the God that we love and we worship, the God of the Bible. So when we talk about the attributes of God, the first place we start is His holiness. His holiness is the attribute that is kind of the pinnacle, kind of the capstone 
that holds the others. A. Hodge says this, the holiness of God is not to be conceived as one attribute among others. It is rather a general term representing the conception of his consummate perfection in total glory. It is his infinite moral perfection crowning his infinite intelligence and power. Infinite moral perfection is the crown of the Godhead. Holiness is the total glory thus crowned. The Bible is clear to the holiness and the perfection and really the complete otherness, the separateness of God from all else. Um, Usually when we think of holiness, we think of the perfection of God, his purity, his majesty, and that's accurate. That's all part of it. But it's even a bigger concept, almost a hard concept to even put into words. You think of Isaiah 6.3. Isaiah has this vision of heaven's throne room, and he sees the angel singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Hebrew, repetition is the way you make something emphatic. And to see something three times, it, it, nothing more could be said. Nothing, just for an example, Isaiah 26.3, the steadfast of mind, you God, the steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace. The steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace. In Hebrew, the way they say perfect peace is they just say shalom, shalom. Like that's how we get across complete, total perfection. We just repeat the word. So in Hebrew, Isaiah 26.3 is the steadfast of mind you will keep in shalom, shalom. Total peace, perfect peace. So to repeat it three times, Isaiah is saying here, the same author too, the same author that does shalom, shalom, is saying kadosh, kadosh, kadosh is Yahweh. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh. Essentially saying, look, I can't make this any more emphatic for you. There's nothing more I could say other than God is infinitely holy. Infinitely holy. We also see this, though. This is really the eternal song in heaven. This is, this is the praise to God for all time. Revelation 4.8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And what's remarkable about that, think back to the deity of Christ we were talking about. There's a lot, what, what Jesus claims for himself in chapter one when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega who was and who is and who is to come. Look, f- flash forward to what John sees in heaven's throne room and the worship that he sees in the throne room. And it's God being worshiped and praised on his throne for eternity for the same attributes that Christ claims for himself. So this holy, 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 we can apply that to the whole Trinity. Obviously the Father, the Father would have been just the immediate thing to come to mind when we look at something like Isaiah chapter 6. But as Revelation shows us, 
This applies to Christ as well. I mean, this treatment of the holiness of God, this attribute in every attribute we will talk about is fully encapsulated in every single member of the Trinity, be it the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Scripture attributes all these things to the full Godhead. Leviticus 19.2. This is huge, right? Like, this sends you running to the gospel. God tells his people in Leviticus 19.2, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And to, you know, Jesus didn't lower the bar. He didn't lower the standard. We glanced at the end of Matthew chapter 5 earlier. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount basically takes this verse and pulls it in to his sermon to tell all his people that this Leviticus 19.2 continues to apply to disciples and followers of Christ. You are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I mean, if anything gets you running to the gospel, it should be this verse because you look at the holiness and the perfection of God and you see that you don't even begin to scratch the surface. You need a Savior. You need forgiveness. The second thing we get to, drilling down more specifically, is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. God is perfect and right in all His actions. Psalm 18.30 As for God, his way is blameless. And it's a pretty remarkable thing. When you think about God in perfection, it is impossible to get your mind around infinite perfection. Think about any individual task that you do. Can you find flaws in it? Most of the time, right? I hate sweeping, Because no matter how hard you try, there's always something that gets left behind. But that's just kind of typical of life. Like anything I do, I can find tons of flaws, tons of imperfection. And I'm not doing that much, you know? Like I'm focused on pretty little things in life. Yet God, the eternal creator of everything, God who holds everything, infinite space, like the 30,000-foot deep oceans, everything we see around us, world events, the God who holds all of eternity in his hands does it perfectly. Even when we don't understand it, it often doesn't, if we're being honest on a human level, it often doesn't look perfect, right? And what I love about the Bible so much, one of the things, is just how honest the Bible is about the realities of life. How often the authors of the Bible are like, God, I'm trusting you here because from my perspective, this doesn't make a lot of sense. And we can resonate with that, right? But when we come back to it, God is perfect and right in all his actions. And just like everything we've seen, when we talk about the person of God, and his attributes. It takes faith. It takes a lot of faith. Because from our perspective, it's difficult. It's difficult to see sometimes. But we know it is true. And thankfully, 
even though we have to come to that by faith, there's an abundance of God's goodness that he shows us every single day. Every single day. We see his grace, his goodness, his love in so many different ways all the time. And so even when it doesn't always make sense, we see enough of his goodness to where we can rest in him. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. I think this verse also points us out. When we sit here and we dissect the attributes of God, like we talk separately about the justice of God. Here we talk about the righteousness of God. We're really just categorizing these things for our own minds so that we can just think more clearly about who God is. In reality, just like when we saw the harmony of his attributes, these things all work together and intertwined in a way, right? So these divisions can be a little bit uh, artificial in a sense. Deuteronomy 32.4, you see the righteousness and the justice of God really being intertwined and working, working together. Revelation 15.3, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Again, you see the great and marvelous works of God. So you've got some of his omnipotence being worked into here. And you just see how all these things really, um, really work together. And the last one, this is where we'll stop for this week. Holiness, righteousness, and justice. Justice, God is perfect in the legislation of his righteous law. He cannot leave sin unpunished or ignore sin. What strikes me when you look around through world history and in our own days is just the absolute impossibility of perfect righteousness. Isn't that remarkable? Look at any culture, any political system, and you could... I'll give you the full reign of human history. Pick out your favorite. Say, like, in all of human history, here's the best government and the best society that has ever existed. And you look at it, and there is so much injustice. Even the good ones, right? Like, even the best we can do is really bad. And it leaves us longing for the Savior and for the new creation in the new world, it's God showing us. When you see the best in human history and how flawed it still is, it's God showing us that he alone is holy and he alone is just. And all his attributes leave us longing. We get a taste of them here on earth. His goodness and his graciousness lets us have a taste of it, but all of us long for that new heaven and that new earth. Um. Proverbs 24, 12, if you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the heart? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? Will he not render to man according to his work? Uh, reminds me of being a dad. Like, your kid does something wrong. You get on to him, they're like, hey, we didn't know. And sometimes you're like, I don't know. I can't read your mind, and I don't know your heart. So I don't know if you're trying to fool me here and saying you didn't know 
or if you legitimately didn't know. Like, doesn't happen with God, though, right? Like, there's no excuses with God. You can't say, hey, uh, God, I didn't know. God knows your heart. He knows your intentions. He knows your motives. Hebrews 9.27, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, after this comes judgment. Judgment is a reality for all of us. Justice will be served. Matthew 5.48, You are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Again, when we think of God's justice, just, justice, it drives us, and this is where we'll end, to the need for a Savior. We need a Savior. Because if you're like me, you're a sinner. And you are guilty. And when you think of the justice of God, you recognize that you are worthy of eternal hell. You are worthy of eternal damnation. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Christ who knew no sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Romans 3, uh, the point that Paul makes, I put a paraphrase or a summary there. God is just and the justifier of those in Christ. In Christ, it's not that God is unjust by ignoring our sin. God doesn't pretend like our sin doesn't exist or that, okay, you know, here, here's the sin. I'm just going to forego the penalty for that. No, Christ paid the penalty. Christ paid the cost. The judgment was dealt, and Christ bore that on the cross. In Christ, God is still just, but with His love and His mercy and His graciousness, He is not just just, but for those who have faith in Christ, He is also the justifier. Our penalty is paid in Christ. So we'll stop there, and we'll pick up on sovereignty next Sunday. But before we go out, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for just the amazing, infinite, just spectacular God that you are. We thank you for the love that you show us by revealing yourself to us. And not simply making yourself known, but also through Christ, making an avenue for, for us to be back in fellowship with you and to know you in a deep way. I just pray that our lives would be impacted by that every single day, that our lives would be changed, and that we would live to your glory and honor. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.